clear. We are the weirdos. I am God. What? I tried to warn her. Hello out there, everybody. This is Jordan Cruciola, and you are listening, hopefully once again, once many times, to the Ots Tyrion podcast. And I am here with... Your co-host, Sam Weinman. Thank God for that. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Friends, say it all day long. I'm here. Yeah. I, I love <laughs> <this>. <laughs> I'm here. I, I am here. Folks, um, we did it. I got to say we did it. We, You are here. You click this episode. You know mm-hmm. what this is. You know <laughs> mm-hmm. what you are getting into. And so we're going to tell you right now. We are not going to hear it about Gail's bangs. We're not a fucking word you can i i'm not, not gonna say whose podcast you can go to for that but i can think of three or four off the top of my head not i here. i you know it is so it is entirely appropriate i i wondered which scream movie we would end up doing first this on is this the pod. right way to this start it off us on ots Tyrion, me and you starting the the scream conversation between us with scream three is the it, it it's it turns out it's the only way that it, it ever could have gone and what brings us what what brought scream to the doorstep of our minds most recently is me and sam and a group of wonderful people uh had the privilege recently of the new beverly uh theater here in los angeles owned by quentin tarantino always on film did a stabathon they did all four screams all back to back four. to back to back um, me and Sam had t-shirt changes for every installment. Listen, you got to show up with a costume change. You've got We're to. We're not new. And you know, Sam we are was, here to show Sam love. was wearing like a, a sequined mesh afghan. Well, okay, but you, we all have like a like a sparkly poncho, right? I mean, yeah, that is just an accessory. Yeah, it's a sparkly poncho. It's a sparkly poncho. An essential accessory. And, and we got to do nail art in line. Yeah, yeah. He love had little my little ghost, ghost face nail. On, yeah. his, on his nails. Um so, Here's the thing. I, I'm telling you, Jordan, I afterwards, I told my boyfriend, this is one of the best nights I've ever had. And it he's was like, amazing. ever? And I said, ever. <laughs> I mean, truly, in my 36 years of existence, that is one of the most incredible nights I've ever had. And I will tell you, as a horror filmmaker, Scream is what got me into horror. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I always watched it growing up, but it wasn't mm-hmm. until sixth grade when I saw Scream that I was like, holy shit, this is what it could be. And then I like started to dig more into it, and I was like this huge Kevin Williamson fan. And so it's like to be there watching mm-hmm. all four films on a big screen, not because I snuck in somewhere, not because I got it at two for ninety nine cent Tuesdays. Like shout out to Video Update, <laughs> yeah. you know. But like, but like actually on film on the big screen with a mm-hmm. crowd shouting the words. I'll send you a copy. Yep. And bam, Sid, super, super bitch. bitch. Um, and me and Sam specifically shouting, uh, I don't need friends. I need, I need fans. fans. Yeah, that was uh, that was a real moment. I would say we hit all the all the best lines. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? I think the straight people around us were, were very pleased. They, they seemed to be yes, having a Yes, the people who time. cheered for Jay and Silent Bob louder than anything else. Yeah, that was a real reveal, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. I'd say, yeah, I think, uh, wow, you really you really showed your whole hand there. And it, it was the shortly after it was the day after seeing this that I, I posted on Twitter. It was like Scream Three is great. I'm I love Scream Three. 
Um, Sam is much more balanced in his assessment of these films as films. I think each one of them is perfect. I love them. They're great. I just want to hang out with my Woodsboro friends, and that's what they give me, and that's all I need. But I, I posted, I was like, Scream 3 is great because Scream 3 is a Gale Weathers movie. We have two Gale It is Weathers. a Gale Weathers movie. What the hell are you doing? Being Gale Weathers. What the hell are you doing? I am Gale Weathers. And I only bring this up because you mentioned the bang, Sam. And it wasn't, it got, it got a fair amount of interaction. So it wasn't like the overwhelming, it wasn't like the majority of people interacting with it brought up the bangs. But no, still, but you know so what? Enough. many people I was bring in those up comments. the fucking I saw that. bangs. I don't know why like, they're enough. acting like it's a new joke. It's been 21 years. No more. No here's, more. Here is what I want to hear in this only. You are here to celebrate it. You are That's here. The, those bangs are queer horror. Those bangs are the documentary I'm making for Shudder. Those yeah. bangs are my first, second, third, and last interviewee. Those bangs are the reason we are gathered here today. So that is why I had to lead with this. Because it's like, look, I... I, I just don't want, I want to make sure anybody who is thinking like that, we're going to snap you out of it right now. We're going to help you be funnier. We're going to just we're help you be, be funnier. We're going we're gonna to help you. We're, we're loading you with ammo so that you can have a conversation about Scream 3 that is intelligent and goes beyond putting a woman down for a look that was chosen by some stylist. Well, and some, somebody responded, they were like, no, but it like legitimately distracted me from the movie and I couldn't enjoy it as much. It's like, just say you didn't like the movie. That's yeah. fine. You don't have to like Scream. If a character's bangs a a a a a three movie at that point legacy character the co-anchor of the franchise the the co-final girl gail weathers if her hair distracted you so much that you couldn't enjoy the movie you just didn't like the movie and okay but let's not pin it on it's just a fucking haircut grow up grow up get over it I think it is worth noting in the in this in the spirit of being balanced. Yes. This movie is written by Aaron Kruger. Yes. Um Freddy Krueger's nephew. And mm. and so it's not no <laughs> but it's mm. it's written by a man who is not Kevin Williamson. It started mm-hmm. off as Kevin Williamson's project. Kevin departed from the film yes. um it, notoriously mm-hmm. and and as as you will hear, you know, uh, in interview after interview from everybody but Kevin, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they changed everything. Mm-hmm. And so what was originally there, we can only speculate. We can only speculate. But what I can wager, mm-hmm. if I would, I feel like every fucking scene with Parker Posey, Kevin. Here's how I see it. I've got no house, no bodyguard, no movie, and I'm being stalked. Because someone wants to kill me? No, because someone wants to kill you. So now, starting now, I go where you go. That way, if someone wants to kill me, I'll be with you. And since they really want to kill you, they won't kill me. They'll kill you. Make sense? None. <laughs> That's fucking queer. Two Gail Weathers is queer. It, turning Gail Weathers into the Olsen twins, queer. Having them solve a mystery, queer. Uh, showing having, up. having one be named Jennifer Jolie and having had her previously date Brad Pitt. Having her an extension of Fiona from the Josie and the Pussycats universe clearly just moving that character into this movie where it she belongs. second Jennifer Aniston gag in this franchise. Because in the second one, Gail's smoking and Dewey's like, when did Gail start smoking? And they're like, oh, after the photo scandal, um, well, uh, the nude photo scandal. And Courtney Cox says, Gail says, wasn't me. It was just my head. It was Jennifer Aniston's body. So I love that dear friend of Jennifer Aniston, Courtney Cox, gets two Jennifer 
direct or adjacent jokes in well, into the Scream franchise. Dear friend of Jennifer Aniston, Courtney Cox. The year 2000 was the year that Jennifer Aniston and Brad Pitt got married. And so, and also, interestingly, because Angelina is a name of a character, too. That was the same mm-hmm. year Angelina got married well, and, to. Yeah, yeah. What was, was that jo- Billy Bob? I almost said Joe Bob. <laughs> I mean, similar. People would have my head. Uh, they already do. So, what I'd love to do, if I can, mm-hmm. I would love to talk about the year 2000. Yeah. I mean, and, and what I what I think is, because there are... This movie is such an interesting time capsule to think of what it is, what it isn't, what it was meant to be, um, and how it is coming at, like, four years, after, like, four years of absolute fucking domination of Kevin Williamson over horror. That's I know what you did last summer. Teaching Mrs. Tingle... Please report to the principal's office. All of those are Kevin Williamson movies. This man defined what we would understand as teen horror for uh, to the present. It is the foundation of teen horror as we understand it today. I no argument there. He yeah. is '90s horror. Mm-hmm. Um, and and honestly, he is the reason why so many of us are doing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, shout out to Kevin. I'm sorry, but I just love his work. I just, I'm so, you know, it's it's like, I know, even as a fan at the time, I was primed not to like Scream 3 because I remember hearing about the fallout. I mean, I guess in a magazine because we didn't have phones back then. Right. Could have been, you know? could, it could have very well, like Entertainment Weekly and it's in its heyday, man. Yeah. I think I got like a newsletter and they were like, Kevin's out. And I was like, well, fuck Scream 3. <laughs> but not actually because I actually had a 15, my 15th birthday. Oh my God. I'm going to go grab this scrapbook and show you after this. I, because <laughs> of course, because gay, I scrapbooked it. Sure. I, I took all of my friends to see Scream 3. Okay. Uh, opening night for my, for my 15th birthday. And, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Big and deal. It, and, oh, big deal. And then I took lots of pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I scrapbooked every moment of just so, going to see a movie. I have to say, this is, friends, this is the most boring scrapbook I've ever seen. It is Right. Like, yeah. That it tough, is just, to, tough to pull drama really, into that narrative. Not a lot of conflict. Not a, There's not really <laughs> yeah. an arc to any not of the characters. Not an arc to the evening. You yeah. Know, I, I would really say there's no rising action. It really <laughs> lacks storytelling, charisma. Yeah. But and nobody, like, got progressively drunker over the night. It's not like things got out of control. <laughs> People's parents just came and picked them up after. No, it's just me looking, like, so stoked for Scream and, like, bad acne. So did you then, did you not like it when you first saw it then? I, no, I always liked it the same amount, I would say. Okay. So when I saw it, I liked it. I didn't love it. Okay. I I knew then that there was something missing, mm. but I didn't know yet what I loved about it. I don't think mm. I had the language to articulate that. Um and but I knew that I still enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until later and coming out and watching this movie and realizing the parts of the movie that I love the most. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally any scene with Parker Posey and Gail every Weathers. minute and, spent with Parker Posey. And, and to me, this movie is their movie because I mean, you said that it's her movie, but also it is. About, it's the Gail Weathers. And think Stone. about how much time we spend on Sydney. Barely any. She doesn't even really get an arc in this movie. She gets haunted by her mom a few times. That's fine. Yeah. Sydney is is very intentionally off camera for like half the movie because she's in hiding. And and we Gail is spearheading 
an investigation. She says like she's working with the police. She's mostly just doing her own thing and the police aren't stopping her. Gail's they're not like leading. Does. They're not investigating this together. Gail Weathers is just on the fucking case in Scream 3. And I think the other thing that I really enjoyed about it immediately was that they were on the set of Stab 3 and these things were happening in Hollywood and the meta concept mm-hmm. of do, having this happen on the set of a sequel to a movie based on the book by Gail Weathers that yeah. is really screaming. It's like all of those layers I fucking lived. And so it's like, you know, when you think about those components, I'd say they're very, very strong. Mm-hmm. And I also think that there are some other elements that read differently today than mm-hmm. read maybe in that moment mm-hmm. that I didn't quite put my finger on. And now it's like bright as day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In terms and, of this and what is, for you is the headline element of that? It's it's Harvey Weinstein. I um, agree. I I really want to talk about the culture, um, but before I hop into that time machine, what I want to say about Harvey Weinstein in this moment mm-hmm. is that so he's on this film, right? And yeah. and we know today, um, Harvey Weinstein is a serial rapist. He is an abuser. Uh, there, he is a shorthand for Hollywood to scapegoat uh, everybody else so that they don't have to look at their own studio heads and say, wait, this is a problem at every studio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it is. Uh, it, Harvey Weinstein is is a product of a system that protects abusers. And this is also the height of Harvey Weinstein's powers. This is Miramax has built its legend over the course of like the mid to late 90s. Shakespeare in Love uh, well, yeah, has, won. has won at the Oscars. Yeah, Gwyneth so Paltrow, he just his got star. his first Oscar in 1999. Mm-hmm. And I will add, Harvey wasn't spotless in the year 2000 when Scream 3 came out. This, you know, people refer to this as an open secret. Mm-hmm. It, this is like, even for a kid in New Hampshire, I knew that Harvey Weinstein was not a good person. And watching yeah. this movie, I was like, this seems a little close to something else. You know, and and when you know what happened, when you look at his career, one big hallmark of what Harvey did in the 90s um, was he re-edited films that were not his. Well, I mean, I guess technically they were his to re-edit, but right. he forced new storylines into things. He was studio with with the movie 54. He het washed it. He mm-hmm. reshot things, took out all the queer elements and tried to make a blockbuster film. It failed. He bought uh, foreign films and he re-edited them. Mm-hmm. He took everything and he made it quote more marketable as that's what he said he's like i'm not trying to fuck with films i'm just trying to like you know sell them but the thing is they didn't sell he just i mean they did i mean he got to where he was but a lot of these films he just fucking shit on them and ruined them and Mm -hmm. what we see with scream 3 is really interesting scream 1 that's kevin williamson's baby it sells Mm -hmm. as is and they make it scream 2 comes out less than a year after scream that script happened so quickly just the turnaround was insane. There's no way he had that many notes. I mean, it was like, I imagine right. that they and were Scream just running Scream was so successful yes. that like, it, it, just, it, it reinvented a whole segment of cinema. So it, it, so between Scream 1 and 2, which were definitely Kevin and Wes's vision, mm-hmm. um, Scream 3 had three years to sit in development. So mm-hmm. think about that. Three years with a man who het washed uh 54 who re-edits everything that comes his way uh without oftentimes without director's permissions mm-hmm. um and is a fucking abusive monster behind well, the and scenes. was more and was more 
what the previous sort of armored myth of Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein was, then like, because Scream comes out in 1996, I would imagine they start working on that movie in like 94, 95. He's still building the house of, of Miramax. By the time three comes out, he's Harvey motherfucking Weinstein. He's right. the guy who's out there you know, with thousands of dollars in his pocket, you know, like, oh, yeah, Harvey, he buys Oscars. Like, there's the reputational dominance of him. Right. Harvey, thank you for killing whoever you had to kill to get me up here today. Um, <laughs> As that studio, and what was aspirational? He was an aspirationally powerful cult of personality studio figurehead that I think, I I would say, is probably modeled after the sort of all-powerful, um, like, omnipotent studio heads from the studio era of, like, you know, the golden age of cinema, where you have, like, these titans of the industry who have screening rooms named after them on lots, like Daryl Zanuck and Adolf Zucker and Louis B. Mayer. These studios were the people who were heads of them were synonymous with the studios and they were the things of legend. And that was the figure that Harvey clearly very intentionally styled himself to be. But in the modern age, um, you know, more disgusting, um, despicable, monstrous way. So this is where it gets hard to... I've been I've been thinking about and trying not to overthink how we talk about this because mm. I think there is no amount of shorthand that can adequately describe the types of abuse, mm. um, both personal and systemic, that are exemplified by the behavior of Harvey Weinstein. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I also want to talk about quite simply the destruction of art in the hands mm-hmm. of, of somebody like Harvey Weinstein. And sure. what is interesting about Scream 3 to me is this is the intersection of both. Mm. And what you have is this very strange subplot because the whole thing is like trilogies. You have to learn something that you didn't know in the first one. Number three, the past will come back to bite you in the ass. Whatever you think you know about the past, forget it. The past is not at rest. Any sins you think were committed in the past are about to break out and destroy you. Now... Whose past came back to bite them in the ass? Well, I'd say Harvey's, right? And in this ki- movie, we have a character named Milton who mm-hmm. is whose past is haunting him because mm-hmm. the re- you know the reveal is Sydney's mother, Maureen Prescott, uh, was brutally gang raped mm-hmm. at a party that he threw by him and a number of Hollywood bigwigs, right? Yeah, and that is just seen as the price that she had to pay to be a star. And those parties were fixtures, Milton's. Milton's hidden screening room, as they talk about in the movie, is a was set famous. It's, yeah. It, yeah, it's a set, it, and it's and it's famous. It was known for its wild parties back in the day, and as he expresses when confronted by the Gales um, about like his how he may have known Maureen Prescott in the past, he says, "It was in the seventies. Everything was different. I was well known for my parties. Men knew what they were. It was for girls like her to meet men." Men who could get them parts if they made the right impression. Nothing happened to her that she didn't invite in one way or another, no matter what she said afterwards. Are you saying she... I'm saying things got out of hand. Maybe they did take advantage of her. You know, maybe the sad truth is, this is not the city for innocence. 
the, this wasn't a one time things got out of control. This is simply the one story of a life we see that was ruined by a group sexual assault hosted by Milton in his home. And I think it, it's interesting thinking too about watching this in, in now and in a theater again, I was taken aback by the office by the confrontation in Milton's office, which, like, where the fuck is that office in L.A.? Is that, like, a, where is it above? Is that the uh, Echo it, Park with downtown right behind? I like, I'm like, is that Echo Park? Is he in a helicopter above Echo Park? <laughs> what his- fucking building is this? Yeah. That was extremely weird. But I was, Im- I was m- impressed with how I saw that scene unfolding because they're there to accuse the man of facilitating a, a, a rape party. Right. And they do. They do. And they don't... What I would expect from that movie is... What I would expect from a movie at that time is for Gail and Jennifer to bring these accusations to him. And when he says that was a different time, for them to be like, okay, we'll drop it. Or like, yeah, you were right. Or not because... Like, Gail's a hard driver. Like, that's for sure. But I'm su- I was surprised watching it how pointedly it is accusing a man of rape in a scream movie in the year 2000. Just what did happen to Maureen when she was in Hollywood? Now you listen to me, Lois Lane. Let it go. It's dead and buried. How would you like to see it dug up on national TV? Why don't you tell me what happened? And I think that's what what I'm talking about when I say the context for the movie itself. Like, it's Mm -hmm. like, when you look at that, these things feel... Whether they're aimed at an individual or aimed at a system, mm-hmm. these feel like intentional swings. Mm-hmm. They do because the way the way Milton is is there, like he's in his big office, he has his posters on the wall, like he's made a ton of money, he's an industry fixture, and then you have these two women. Specific, it's not Dewey. This is Jennifer no. and Gail, right? Who have gone on this mission and have discovered that Maureen made Milton made movies with Milton in her right. early twenties. And then, so, like, you didn't say you knew Maureen Prescott. You know, what is it? Um, Rita Reynolds. You didn't didn't say you knew Rita Reynolds. And he initially evades them. And then they keep pushing, and he's like, listen, she knew what she was getting into. They all knew what they were getting into. And there's a pressure on him in that scene that I, I didn't think this movie had, I wouldn't assume this movie had in it, but for watching it again. There's a tone of voice he uses that people only use in L.A. when they're about to tell you something shitty Ellen did. <laughs> you know what I mean? That like, is it's a like, specific he's like, tone of voice. Listen, this is how it is here. <laughs> like, yeah. that's really... You want to get ahead in Hollywood? You're going to play the game or go home. Listen, little girl, go back to Kansas if you can't handle it kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and the way, and the thing, the way they just, the way they have him actively describe what he did too. Yeah. You kind of think they're going to keep it general. You kind of don't know what you're going to learn. No. But that they, they have him they go spell for out being exactly the Harvey Weinstein that he is. Yes. I was like, this is so much more specific to the executive producer on this movie than I thought it could be right where he talks about that he talks about the room he talks about the women he talks about the parties he talks about it being a different time which is exactly what harvey weinstein said at one point in one of his defenses of himself when he was still denying all the allegations right. this is and before he was convicted and the 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 way he lines it out is like they're not soft peddling this actually they're describing exactly who the head of miramax is right now hollywood is full of criminals whose careers are flourishing i'm not a criminal 
that's why I think it's... Look, do I like how Scream 3 says it? Yeah. Not exactly. Would I do it differently? It's not good enough. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. in the year 2000, 17 years before this this unfolds publicly, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think it's a pretty big fucking swing. Yeah. Agreed. And what is hard for me about that, or what, what complicates it, is just that the film itself is limited by its producer, in my opinion. Indeed. So mm-hmm. what we have is this storyline where it's very clear that Milton is a piece of shit. It's very clear mm-hmm. that Milton like has done wrong, but yet they still take every shot to kind of slut shame Maureen. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. but she cheated. She had sex with both of these peop- these men also, and here she is in the same shot going between two rooms at a motel, which, by the way, yes, Maureen, yes. Yes, same <laughs> shot. Yes, two men at that motel. But anyways, mm-hmm. get it. Um, but yeah, but, one but, one being cotton weary and the other being Billy Loomis's dad. So but but in, in the world, in this particular world, it's almost portrayed as it's implied that like this event broke her. And because of that, she became like this promiscuous, mm-hmm. broken woman who cheats and is the cause of multiple killers, mm-hmm. you know, and really drove all of these men insane. And mm-hmm. then for me, the 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 nail in that coffin is just the character of Ange- is it Angelina. Now, uh, oh, the 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 uh, Emily the, Mortimer's character, Emily Mortimer, who plays who plays uh, who's yeah, play, who wins the the casting call to be the ingenue of Screen Three to be the new Sydney Prescott. Who and she gives such an incredible performance. Emily it's Mortimer, one of the best things Emily Mortimer's ever done. I agree, and I like Emily Mortimer a lot. Me too. I agree. Yeah, and I fucking love it. And she she gives so much depth and brings so much soul to this character. And then there's a line later where she's like, I did not fuck that pig. And then she gets murdered. And it's almost in a way like, well, that's what you get for falling into the studio system. And mm-hmm. I I just think that the movie itself is doing two things at once. I imagine the people involved. And look, I can only speculate because I don't mm-hmm. fucking know. But I imagine that enough people involved in making this are knowing what's going on with Harvey. Mm-hmm. And then enough control is at the top. Where Harvey's like, mm, but a character like this needs to die. Like it, it has, because to me, it has both the push mm-hmm. and pull. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I think, well, I, I think, because um, sex is, but for the idea of the rules and the virgin lives, that kind of thing. One of my favorite things about the Scream franchise, and we've talked about this before, is that it's, it is such an asexual franchise. For, you know, there's so often the association between, like, the killer and the knife as, like, a phallic association and the knife as a penetrative act, which is very much what you see in the Leon, what is it, Leopold and Loeb um, echoes in Billy and Stu in the first one and the stabbing mm-hmm. being penetrative. But, like, Ghostface itself, the kills never feel sexually exploitative in the way that a lot of psycho killers can often have this, like, tinge of eroticism to murders with women. There's almost no nudity in Scream. Like, the most we see is, like, a girl in her bra in Scream 4. But, like, I, I love these movies because I feel like that sort of sexual violence is, sexually tinged violence is off the table. And so what you see once that gets introduced in the way that it is into Scream 3, you have it arriving at a time where 
We are entering the aughts. We are coming off the... We are coming into the house that was built on the foundation of late 90s pop culture. The um, sort of angel whore binary that we see manifested in our pop stars at the time. You know, it's our Britney era, our Christina era, our boy band era. And there is the sort of purity test that everybody has to pass yep. in order to not be that whore. I, I would love to build to add to add the, the sprinkle in that cultural context. But yeah. 2000 is the release of Britney Spears's "Oops, I Did It Again" album, which yes. just in title alone, "Oops, I mm-hmm. Did It Again," is playing with the virgin whore complex, right? And mm-hmm. and just basically about every track on it. Um, yeah. But that is the image. Also, 2000. That is the same year that Scary Movie came out. So we are getting like franchise fatigue. Also, 2000. Mm-hmm. Speaking of princesses, um, uh, Christina Aguilera won. Uh, best new artist at the Grammys in 2000. God damn. And yeah. so when you're thinking about a year when Britney Spears strips at the VMAs and, yep. and yet, and Christina, Aguilera, that is the year of the iconic satisfaction performance. Correct. Yes, the rhinestone nude the suit That's and the, the rock one. remix of oops. Oh my God. But to And this is And the get, way people were fucking scandalized when they when that way, happened. Full body flesh colored suit. People were full scandalized. Body flesh people were like, oh my god, Britney Spears stripped and twerked on a pole, which by the way did not happen. She like basically dances around it like it's a carousel, but that's fine. It was a Yeah, she moment. she does like one rotation on it and it sends her into an into a new part of the stage. And like, you know she's got that hat from the all. roommate. You know, yeah, and, you had to have your fedora. It was but, as was required. You know, two thousand is musically a very weird time because that's like no strings attached and saying pop princesses. It's the thong song. So there's like yeah. this weird sexuality, but it's also kind of muted. And this is. Well, it's, it's, oh, it's, it's sexual. It is marketing based completely on Lolitification yes. of, of women and girls and the twinkification of men and boys. Yes. But that is also so veiled as to be danced around where the marketing can be that way, but the the figures themselves are not allowed to be that way because that would break the rules. They're not allowed to go against the system. They're not allowed to be whores. They can in aesthetic because that moves things and that sells things and that makes men's erections happy, but they cannot have the, the agency or control to actually deviate from the algorithm. Now, I, I bring this up, and I may have talked about this on the pod before, which is why I'm going to keep it really short, but it is important for cultural context. Also in 2000 is the real Slim Shady, and it has the line, So it's like all of that is a, these are lyrics in a song that like Amer- every teenager fucking knows by heart. And mm-hmm. it's just singing about how, and then the the, the lines after that are about like Christian Aguilera giving people an STI. It is so gross and dehumanizing. And yet the culture is, wow, isn't this like, isn't this fun and tongue in cheek? And this mm-hmm. is the beginning of, to me, this moment, the year 2000 is the beginning of the cruelty that we see mm-hmm. spread out through the odds. And it starts in pop culture here. 
Well, and I think too that as we see as we see the Williamson era, because like yeah, the fatigue happens when a sensibility becomes the prevailing predominant tone of something, and it's what you see over and over again. Mm-hmm. So the but like what is inherent in the 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 tone of Kevin Williamson is it is fun, it is sincere. Yes, there's an there is an innocence to it. There there is. You know, these are, are are movies, you know, with plenty of kick, but there is like a, a kind of wonderfully PG-13 sensibility about them. And as we go into the new millennium, things are, as the bar gets moved further and further for the sexual appetites of marketing executives and what they learn they can get away with, you stop being able to peddle sincerely in like teen fame and you just start crossing this threshold into sexual idolatry of children and of young pretty things right and it's interesting like in 2001 in the movie valentine i think is a really good example of of millennium era slut shaming where you have the denise richards character Paige. she tells one of her friends shells marley shelton's character when she gets home from the precinct where a police officer has just felt her up and, and offered her sex and she's like that cop was hitting on me like he propositioned me and marley shelton's character's first response is well did you ask him to right and so the idea that the we are so steeped forwardly in the idea of the guilt and cause being 100 percent on the shoulders of women that women are completely responsible for the actions of men that women are completely responsible for the abuses of men and not that they weren't historically before that but just for the purposes of what we're talking about a millennium in this specific moment yeah this is what we're seeing both pop culturally and reflected back to us in this film yeah, and, and so what we see in Scream with 2000 is regard like not being able to speak to the actual intentions of people involved. Never, yeah. If even even in a world where Scream's Scream 3's intention is to not just salaciously bring this in as a plot device because it's something new and it's something they haven't done before, but it's something they actually want to put into the story because it's like, hey guys, this is fucked up and Hollywood is a horror story. There is no possible fucking way that scream three can do it right because no one is right nowhere is harvey weinstein is literally at the control so make that the most extreme version of like i don't know what is that irony what 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 is that even the idea of harvey weinstein producing a movie that's about a serial rapist that'd be like me making a queer horror doc for chick-fil-a Right. Like, I, I, again, I don't like for the word, the exact word for what um, encapsulate this escapes me right now. But we look at this movie and at the time that it even dared to. Right. With what one could have in the toolkit in the year 2000, I think this movie actually handles its subject matter in regards to Maureen Prescott pretty well in the context of the fact that it was inevitable that her character would be slut-shamed. What he did to her made her a slut, didn't it? Huh? She never recovered from that night right here in this room. They fucked her three ways from Sunday, ruined her life. Ruined yours too, didn't it, Sid? Because of the time, in the context of the fact that there was, we did not have the language at a like at an everyday level, let alone at like a studio making horror movies level level, to indict a system that perpetuates exploitation exploitation, we we straight up had no language for this. We had no appetite to talk about it. There was no recognition of it conversationally as a cultural problem. Everything of everything about sexual exploitation in Hollywood was an open secret at the time. There was no desire to stamp this out, let alone 
peek behind the curtain even a little bit at a mass media level to un- to address it. I so bring the up fact pop music. That... I bring up the, pop go... music because of what you're saying, though, because it's like think about like the year 2000 again. The single "Lucky" by Britney Spears. It's like yeah, she's so lucky. She's a star. Why did these tears come at night? There was mm-hmm. this weird cultural fantasy that yeah. women who were catapulted into fame, the exchange was that they had to give up a part of themselves or their soul yeah, or whatever that to be was, there. That and was, that in, was intrinsic. That's it was it, intrinsic. Like, it is so much bigger than just looking at the, which by the way, the, the realities of the studio system, but looking that culturally we were at, as a society, like, Oh yeah. That's just a, the price of fame is yeah. to become a whore and like, yep. listen to the words of like any fucking fallout boy song. And you're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it really is a strange the filter that's applied to women mm-hmm. in this industry is so specifically mm-hmm. skewed. That's yeah. where I, which I, so I, I actually, I, I hear your point that this is like the, it, it's a pretty big swing. It was, and especially, especially since the, the, cause like, again, it doesn't handle it like it should, because should in the context of, of, of possibility now right. didn't exist at the time. But, like, that we have an entire movie built around putting the daughter of a woman in the rape dungeon where her mother's life was forever changed. And that she is brought face-to-face with this past by, bre- by being brought face-to-face with the man responsible for her mother's trauma. The judgment is so much more, to me, apparently on Milton than it is on Maureen. We just straight up didn't have the fucking language to process what the effect of that was on Maureen beyond saying, like, you know, there's the whole speech from Roman where he's like, they fucked her six ways from Sunday, ruined her life. Like he, it is named that what happened to her ruined her life. Here it is. The man who gave away your mother's innocence, huh? And I, I would say that it is not a failing of the era to suggest that a woman probably between the ages of 18 and 22 had her whole life irrevocably damaged as a result of a gang rape. I think that's fair. I think the idea of that person going on to have a complicated relationship with sex and intimacy with men is also not is not an, an ungenerous way to express the after effects of something like that. And but I like it's it's putting the language of slut and whore to it. That's like and here's the value judgment that we could not escape at the time that even in acknowledging even in the 2000s to acknowledge a woman's victimhood, you could still call her a whore because, well, she was like you can even be like, oh, look at this terrible thing that happened. She was raped. This should have never happened. This man is evil. And that's why she's a whore. That's why she's a yeah. slut. And I think it is such a succinct expression of the pervasive misogyny that we see exemplified in horror at the time to to see a movie that is actually really trying to convince you that Milton is the bad guy, but in the process of doing so, cannot avoid calling the woman he heard a slut. And not in like a, yeah, I'm a slut, and like, you know, slut march sex positive kind of way but in an all isn't that sad she's the pariah of the town kind of way and so the duality of it is such an 
interesting part. It's 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 what we stood outside of the theater at the New Beverly on uh, that night and said, we need to do this for the podcast. This is why we need to talk about Scream 3 for the podcast. And it's important. It's an important conversation that I don't think is being had about the film because people can't get past her bangs. And I don't, I'm just, I, I, and I, I know I'm agree. bringing this back. I completely, no, you're like, right. You're this right. Movie, this movie gets reduced to to things that I think really sell its place in horror history short. And mm-hmm. it is important that we talk about it. And this is why. It's like if, if at this point, this type of behavior, this systemic abuse is pop cultural legend. It's in songs. Mm-hmm. It's in Scream 3. This it's is, in Scream 3 for fuck's sake. We got it. Then it takes 17 more years for Me Too. And I'm not even talking about just Harvey. I'm talking just yeah. in general. Yep. So so because we had – because how we were looking at this in the moment was how the movie kind of treats it, which is this – I and, and we may – I think we do differ on this take mm. on it, but I do think the movie treats it as a titillating reveal – um, I that's think fair. It, that I will not. I will it, not disagree with that. I, and and that's the. But I also think it has to, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because of and that's where it comes back to the context for me, which is like I wish that it didn't. I think that it yeah. does because of the hands that it's in. Now I can only mm-hmm. speculate, right? Um, right. But I think that toxicity trickles down, and mm-hmm. I don't know who the who and the what of it. Honestly, doesn't really matter. Because right. just looking at this through a set of eyes that we have today, I think is important in terms of recontextualizing Scream's place in, well, all of this. Scream mm-hmm. 3, sorry. Um, no, I think you're right. Go ahead. Well, and I think one of the one of the one of the great strengths of Scream 1 and 3 is the accuracy with which it presents the entitled male antagonist. Thank you. Yes. I, like, I agree. I the idea Ro- of Roman. What- oh my god, mm-hmm. I went to film school with him. And who's our hero, huh? The sole survivor. Who's the one who bravely faced down the psychopath and killed her with her own knife? The idea of what the idea of what Billy is owed in this world mm-hmm. that Sydney's yep. mother took from him. And that, like, he, it's a it, broken home. He said, but it's, it's what he was taken from him that he deserved. And it is so heinous that his happy home was disrupted that it trumps the fact that he, it, he, he kills a, he, he rapes and murders the mother of his, actively his girlfriend. Him and Sydney have been dating for two years in the timeline of the movie when we meet him, when he crawls through the window. Yep. And then she is coming up on the one year anniversary of his mother's death. Of her mother's death. And he's like, Sid, you really should get over this. (laughs) You should really get over this. And then you go to, like, and and then in number two, obviously, like, Timothy Oliphant's character is just, he's just off the reservation. But then, like, in three, Roman Pritchard is such a perfect, like, we don't really, it was, you know, very de rigueur to use the term incel to describe every entitled man there for a minute. But just, like, kind of the perfect incel douchebag and he the way they have him spell it out like you're gonna pay for the life you stole from me sid for the mother and for the family and for the stardom and god damn it everything you have that should have been mine god why don't you stop your whining and get on with it i've heard this shit before stop he screams at sydney that he like under the guise of getting justice for their mother he's gonna kill he's gonna kill you know this studio head he's gonna kill milton when actually fucker it is all about what you 
didn't have. And he is, mind you, the director of a major studio franchise film when we meet him. He starts killing everybody before his movie gets shut down. He's not driven to anger because Stab 3 is not going to work. Roman is in the system. Roman made it. Roman got it. And he still has to come down on Sydney and a dead woman for him not having the life he feels so fully he deserves. And these movies do a really fucking good job of giving you spoiled little boys to hate. All I ever wanted to do was make a real classic love story. And the studio said they'd let me. I just had to do a scary movie for them first. And now we're shut down and I am fucked. God, it's not the end of the world, Roman. I would love to shoot down some of what the haters say about this film, if I may. With sure. a little bit of, I know. You no, know I would love it. Here's the thing. I, I'll tell you what I love about this movie, and it may be, again, we may differ, but I love that Sydney drives down from Monterey to Hollywood because what's <laughs> going on? Minutes. And it's just like, knock, knock, I'm at the police station just when they're going to call her. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. I, I love that in a scene where the killer is like faxing one line at a time to this rewritten script, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. a character who was not established to have smoked who never pulls out a lighter to read anything until he goes back into the house, pulls out a lighter to read whoever smells the gas and it blows up. I'm screaming. I love it. Love it. Give me more. I thought, and see, I always thought he got the lighter off the kitchen counter oh, because but, Parker, because oh, okay, uh, Jennifer okay. Jolie smokes and she's right. like, this is what he's driven me to. And not, it is, it's so deeply convenient and there's but, actually no reason he shouldn't be able to read they that. Because just reading the in that room. coming in from outside. But here's there's the thing. no reason. Love it. But I did assume that the lighter was from the kitchen. I think that's a safe assumption. Love it. But again, I think, should, have been able, so, should have been able to read that fax in the other room. I think there's something that's happening specifically at this time in horror that is allowing for this to be as campy as it is in, mm. in the way, in the specific way that it is. And mm. I, God, it's like all the downer topics, but like it starts with Columbine. And so okay. Columbine is for, you know, our Gen Zers who may not know, it was like the big, it, it was kind of the the kickoff of the school shooting pandemic or epidemic that we continue to have today. Um, And it was in uh, April of 1999 and it changed everything about horror. So what happened is think about the rage carry two came out three weeks before Columbine and it after did not sit well, right? Because it's a movie about revenge and in high school and all of a sudden violence in movies was getting peeled back. So Mm -hmm. think about the most popular movies that came out after Columbine Blair Witch Project, barely any gore. The Sixth Sense, no gore. The Mummy. Mm -hmm. Those movies were all top 10 movies that year after that. So horror had changed. So the studio's like, well, shit, Scream 2 was bloody as fuck. It was. Mm -hmm. I mean, it had. Yeah, the kills in Scream 2 are are excellent. And and all so with Scream 3, there was an intentional pulling back to appease what was a new sensibility with horror goers, which was. There wasn't a lot of, uh, I mean, there never was a lot of sex in this series, but there's mm-hmm. not, suddenly it's, it's more comedy and mm-hmm. and less violence. And it is. It, it's a more, it is a comedic film first. Yeah. And so Scream 3, I think, feels like somebody trying to take the spirit of Scream and steer it into what they think is going to sell based mm-hmm. on the popularity of the films that are happening between Columbine and the release of this film. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it's interesting, too, with Columbine, because Columbine comes a year after the Thurston High School shooting in Oregon, um, where... Tell me about that, because I'm not familiar. 
Thurston Thurston happened in in Springfield, Oregon, and uh, Kip Kinkle, a young boy named Kip Kinkle, uh, went to school and killed two students, uh, injuring dozens more. And Kip was, I think, the reason Columbine became the galvanizing point that it was was because Thurston had happened. But when Thurston happened and Kip Kinkle happened, it was like, look at this aberration. Mm. But then when, when Columbine, Columbine happened, happened, it was like, we have to make change. What do we do? It was a second thing. It was, and, and there was the idea of the trench coat mafia, and it was Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris. There were two well, boys. And that's why I brought and it there up was in this terms of this. Court. I don't want to like, like oh, no, no, not at all. It. But I think what we're realizing at this point is that when Columbine happens, oh, fuck, this, isn't an, this thing isn't an isolated incident. There's something rotten here. The culture's changing here. There's yes. something evil and pervasive, and we need to blame something. We blame the movies. Trial of the Century. That's what Mickey's going to do. He's going to blame the movies. And so then by the time we get to 2000, and we've had Thurston and we've had Columbine, well, suddenly the culture itself to its core, well, we are afraid of something inside of us. And Hollywood and we is are literally reacting. changing. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and citing Columbine is the reason. Yeah. That's the difference. Yeah. Like, to me, that's oh, the... Oh, completely. It's the blame Marilyn Manson for Columbine. Yep, blame, exactly. And blame Marilyn Manson for hell coming I mean, into Earth God. and taking human form. Yeah. But, but, like, blame blame violence in video games. Blame violence in movies. Like, absolutely. And so... That's what you're hearing about in congressional testimonies is Columbine. And why giving all of the, the wine scene and Columbine of it all, all of this is uncomfortable? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, also, all of this affected the outcome of this film. Mm-hmm. And so when you're thinking about kind of, like... We've talked about 2007 being a cultural car crash. I mm-hmm. feel like Scream 3 might be the train wreck. You know? Interesting. Okay. It's like no, I hear you. There are different things traveling at different speeds, and all of a sudden we have Scream 3. And mm-hmm. it is, uh, I think it takes some really bold swings. I think it is very much affected by the environment in which it's released. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that is not to the benefit of the general movie going audience. Mm hmm. But, friends, this is where I come in. Yes. yes. <laughs> because it's like, okay, sure. You guys don't like that? I love it. A voice changer it. that makes no sense based on no, no technology sense. that is mimicking people's, uh, like, the way that they talk? Sure. Give it to me. Dewey's got our voices. This killer is so extra. This killer is. This killer has... He is going out of his way to do special impersonations of people and yeah. direct a movie. Oh, my God. You guys, I can barely, like, do my laundry at this Honestly, set. where does Roman find the time? Roman is such an overachiever. And honestly. Yeah, Roman is all over the city of Los Angeles. And you know Roman didn't miss a single Christmas card. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like Roman, Roman was too opportunistic to miss a single Christmas card. Roman, no way. Roman is the reason why people kill themselves over doing work here in, in Los Angeles. <laughs> Just like, oh, well, I got to keep working because Roman, because some has sociopath like Roman shoot days yep. and says rise and grind. Yep, Roman takes one day off a year and it's Christmas. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's who Roman is. So we have this guy at the center of this thing who I think honestly is. If you are taking him as seriously as a Billy or Stu or taking him yeah. as seriously as even a Debbie Salt, which, by the way, can you take Debbie Salt seriously? Fuck off. If you <laughs> if you can excuse Debbie Salt, but you get the three and you balk at Roman. You're I'm so sorry. Right. I'm no, that's sorry. A very good point. <laughs> Debbie Salt. You know what, though? Who gives a flying fuck anyway? Let him try and track down the second possible killer. Debbie Salt doesn't exist. You're as crazy as your son was. 
Debbie Saul is queer, 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 and so is Roman. These reveals are camp. Go director Sid. And direct. And and that's where it's like, I get it. Look, did anybody want all that shit to disappear from cinema in terms of violence and kind of like this shit? No, nobody was asking for the culture that we arrived at. But this yeah. is where we were in 2000. And honestly, I love the bonkers kind of over the top shit that came out of that specifically, that moment specifically. Well, and it, it, it's it's a in the way that, you know, we have we have that great conversation about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm-hmm. uh, the Jessica Biel version and 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 Michael Kennedy bringing up that this is really that and Freddie versus Jason come out in within weeks of each other. Right. And they so back to back signal where horror was for the previous eight years and where it's gonna go for the next eight and you have this movie sitting in this weird bridge time where we're not really making movies like disturbing behavior or scream anymore but we're not yet making exactly the movies like saw and texas chainsaw massacre the revamp and it's sitting in between and it has to sort of please the masters of all of these cultural changing cultural mores yes and that's an impossible fucking job so what we need to do in that kind of tempest, the is, port we find in that storm is two gale weather. Two is Parker. They gave Posey. us. They gave us two. They were like, "Did you like Gale in one and two? Good. We're gonna stack them." Gale Weathers. Oh my god. I, listen, I, I, I know we've never met, and I, I don't mind you never returning my calls, but I have to tell you, after two films, I feel like I am in. Your mind. Mm, well, that would explain my constant headaches. We're gonna stack them. Here you go. And we're gonna have we're gonna have Parker Posey giving like an avant-garde performance Here. as Gail as Gail too. Here's the thing about Parker Posey. She knew what movie she was in. You're exactly right. I think honestly, I think her and dude playing Roman and Courtney Cox, they all knew. They got the newsletter. I yeah. think there are a couple people who I think you're completely who right. Who maybe maybe weren't sure. They were a little yeah. tentative. Not Parker Posey. <laughs> Parker Not Posey her. rolled onto set in her flip flops and pink robe because you know she wears something <laughs> kooky. That's just how she drives. Has you know? to be. And and then get and she is just she came in character start to finish. That's just it. I I don't know. I just I think that she she's giving us something special because she knows what Scream Three is. Now, if everybody else would wake up to what Scream Three is, then they could enjoy the ride. I mean that you have that you have a moment where like Jennifer Jolie is <laughs> Judy Jurgenstern. You have Jennifer Jolie like with a cigarette in her hand talking about how she's been driven to driven to smoking again. And she's like, I haven't had one of these in a year and a half. Someone's gonna pay for this. Jennifer, settle down. What happened? And then in the end of her tantrum, goes and just like seamlessly throws herself into the arms of protection guard Stephen Stone like a little baby in yeah. his hands. The the these the detail and D- the detailed and relentless commitment to this Gale Weathers knockoff is so incredible. It is it, it is a landmark performance in a career that is defining of a generation of like alt comedy that is Parker Posey. So, and this is where we're going to, I know this might be a divergent moment, but when Parker Posey's character dies, that's mm-hmm. when the movie's over for me. I 
I that's a, that's a reasonable. And I wish it wasn't the case. I want to ride that roller coaster out there. I do love. I will give it to Sydney. I love the way that Sydney kicks Roman's ass. I think okay. it is so fucking. Again, this is like queer, queer, queer. Like that yeah. Sydney's got like a bulletproof vest under a bulletproof vest with like a tiny gun, but like another gun. <laughs> yeah. Like Sydney is just like multiple tiny guns. Sydney pops she out of scary movie into this that movie. She is going to be metal detector wanded upon mm-hmm. arrival to the final showdown location so she packs multiple tiny guns in the same shoe and her, you know so when so when uh, look Gorgeous. I, love that. I love that when mm. jennifer jolie dies it hurts in the same way it that hurts. in scream 4 it die it hurts when kirby dies and yeah. so i i choose to live in an alternate reality scream timeline where jennifer jolie was seriously wounded but did not die. Yeah. And well, Kirby how little time we spend on her dead body. We didn't, I think that is the I, headcanon we should I agree. Should stick and with. so this time while think, watching all four, yeah. uh Jennifer Jolie did not die. She bled out, no. but she Jennifer, they, she Jennifer they got Jolie to her in time. And Kirby, we saw a lot of blood. Did we see her dead body after that? No. Nope. Kirby's we alive. We from her so fast. Kirby's alive. So here's the thing. Kirby, Jennifer Jolie, they're alive and well, and we are getting them in some kooky spinoff where they cross <laughs> yeah. country to meet one of their moms. I don't know. You know, but it's like, <laughs> I, I I cannot accept her, her death. I will not. I send it back. No, I, Return I, to send No, return, like unsubscribe, unsubscribe from the death of Jennifer Jolie. And what I... I think here is what, and this is why every scream works for me. I think what this movie truly testifies to is the incredible nature of the performances that Nev Campbell and Courtney Cox Ugh. give in their roles and Ugh. how, because even in the, in the installment that goes the furthest astray that has the fewest supporters <laughs> that has the, the smallest campaign for reclamation, even in this one, Nev and Courtney are so completely inside these characters. These characters are them. They are so perfect as them always. Yeah. They so fully understand their characters and have made them so real. No matter how much anybody says Scream 3, I don't like it because it's not a Scream movie to me. Sydney and Gail are always Sydney and Gail. Do you have a number stored in your memory? Phone memory. The power of their performances and their their ability to convey these characters perfectly every time. It is agnostic to the script. The script makes it a good or a bad movie, but whether it will not affect whether or not Courtney is going to give a great Gale and Sydney's going to give a great Nev. So when you get that final scene coming after the death of Jennifer Jolie is unquestionably the 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 most wrenching part of this movie, no doubt. But I I I ride with it to the very end because of Sydney's fight with Roman because it is such yeah. a great like signature Nev moment of closing a scream triumph you know why you kill people roman do you don't want to hear it because you choose to there is no one else to blame fucking damn it why don't you take some fucking responsibility fuck you fuck you because gail is there to the very last with her and they always are and they always end together Mm -hmm. and that regardless of anything else that happens in a scream is why i need scream clear it's why scream is my favorite it's why i love it and why it can never actually let me down with those principles involved because they always fucking crush it 
it's never like, oh man, Nev was off her game. Or like, I don't know, Courtney kind of phoned it. Literally no, never. Never. Literally never. And for that, uh, an Oscar for Nev. A, a best supporting Oscar for, for Courtney. You know how I know a straight person wrote this ending, though? <laughs> is, is, is Officer Kincaid popping popcorn for Nev Campbell and then Dewey <laughs> proposing? It's like there's like a proposal. There's a coupling yeah. up of, of Sydney with a man she doesn't need. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, Send no. him back. And she yeah. leaves the door open. Here, No, here's the ending I want. I want Gail and Sydney popping mm. popcorn and talking some shit. Because and drinking wine yes. and just like, girl, again, we the did it The fact that they ended up with these two men at the end and the subpar fucking Kincaid, I just could not. I was like, okay, look, I I have a lot. And th- and I know this is where, because you have a, a lot more straight people sympathy than I do. And sure, I know you sure, said, sure. you know, you, you bring up a good point. There are good straight people out there. I just <laughs> think this ending. <laughs> I so, no, I, this is hetero that- horror. No, that 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 is not that is not that is not a lie. That is not wrong. I do I I do love the proposal moment just for the simple fact of the line of Dewey saying, "You know it's not like I know it's not gonna mm. work. You know it's not gonna work, but like we should try." And I like the acknowledgement of their inevitable demise. Yeah, but like yeah. it doesn't need it. We don't need to go there. Like truly, you're right. All I want to see in that moment is is Gail and Sydney talking shit and just being like this i mean hopefully it stops one day but like Look, girl i clink cheers it's a cute moment do i get teary-eyed yeah he put it <laughs> he put it in her book yeah okay look i'm an emotional wreck you know me i'm like gail's gonna get happiness but here's the thing because yeah. but i just know that like straight people love a proposal with no context they're just like yeah oh, oh yeah. was your ex back in town and you guys got along for five minutes <laughs> will you <laughs> yeah. marry me yeah, absolutely. And that is, it's so much like, it, it, similarly in disaster movies, me and Amanda, um, there's a, there's a, with me and Amanda, there's a trope of the disaster movie child that after they've been orphaned um, by the disaster and they lose their family, the, the disaster hero wins the child. So like oh, you right. always, you yeah. always adopt, you always immediately adopt the orphan disaster child. Right. It's just like, oh, there's this kid here. Well, I guess I. I've always them wanted now. to be a parent. I've always wanted to be a parent. What a gift! And that is, I think that is the parallel. Yeah. That is the that is the the child rearing parallel to the matrimonial on the other side of like, oh, you're back in town. Let's get married. Well, and you know, Kevin wasn't having that ending because we we flash forward to 2011 and scream stream four. <laughs> Where the fuck is Kincaid now? Not a peep. <laughs> not a peep. Not a peep. And Gail is miserable. Oh yeah. And- <laughs> Gail made the wrong choice. And, <laughs> for and Gail. We will, we will we will talk about We will, we will, we will. Point, but I will not say tonight. that somebody but- I don't remember if it was somebody I don't remember if it was three or four that somebody responded to me in that Gail tweet. Um they said like that what they didn't like was that it made Gail it, it just made Gail again like a money grubbing spotlight hungry, like attention whore kind of thing. And it's like yeah, that's Gail. Yeah, I'm sorry. Did they see a different one and two yeah, than like, we did? That's that's Gail. Uh, that's that's Gail through and through. So the idea of that being a part of her personality is like, no, she's constantly in tension with the fact that she does like at least some of these people some of the time and that her core nature is self-serving and narcissistic. Like, no, no, that's not a betrayal of Gail Weathers. That's the Gail Weathers I came to hang out with. I think I took care of you. I waited until you were well, but I couldn't stay there. It was like dog years. One year in Woodsboro, it was like seven anywhere else. Right, I didn't come here 
for Gail, like, I don't know, Gail's, Gail's book club. You know, yeah, I came yeah. out, I came for her for her expose. I think that, absolutely. you know, you made a really great point in, in terms of Gail and Sydney existing together and how they can be truly themselves because the other one survives. So it's yes. like, uh, Sydney doesn't have to be a final girl who is, has all these attributes clumped onto her. She's not overstuffed no. and Gail no. doesn't have to have more of a heart of gold than she does. And that's what nope. allows us to love her. They yep, get to be exactly. who they are. Because they fight together. They get to be real people who are not all the things wrapped into one vessel. They get to be right. two friends that you know who are in each other's lives because they complement one another. And that is the that is such the strength of Scream at its core and why I will say over and over and over again, no matter how many times we talk about this movie, Sydney cannot die in five. Sydney cannot die in five because if you kill Sydney, you kill the purpose of Scream existing at all because her and Gale in their counterbalancing of one another allow for each of them to be the best possible versions of themselves throughout every chapter of these movies. Yeah. And I, I I love that so much. And it respects that a woman doesn't have to be all things to all people. It lets them be each their own individual profile because they don't have to take the shape of whoever's around them to please them and be every audience's like favorite sweetheart. Because they don't have to be because we get to have both. I want to say that with part three in context of the marathon and why I thought it was really special that we got to see it that mm-hmm. way. Something that I appreciated about it more than I had in the mm-hmm. past is it's pacing in the context of one, two, and four. Mm. Three feels, if you all are marathoning them, it's a real good marathon. Like mm-hmm. I think I've always seen scream out of context. I've never seen or straight screen three out of context. I've never seen it in line with the others. It got actually it. fits really well. It folds I, right is, into it. I think and you're I think so it, right. It and that sets, is a common critique. That is a common critique. And I think it's wrong. And it sets up Scream 4 for more success, I think. I think that Scream 4 it looks back at Scream 3 and it course corrects some of those things at the ending that we were like, mm, no. And Scream 4 yeah. was like, you're right. And when you watch them all <laughs> back to back, you don't have to lo- you don't have to experience the loss. You don't have to sit there and be like, oh, yeah. God, what, th- what this could have been. You're already into the next one. It feels like the perfect installation. Like that mm-hmm. moment where you think, oh, I guess this is where it's going. And it's not. I love that. And I think for that reason, 3 is actually a super strong entry. Scream, this is my opinion. Scream mm. as a closing chapter of a trilogy, weak. As a okay. part three in a four-part series, strong. That's a very that's a very good point, and I think very astute. Yeah, thanks, friend. I think that's really true. And and I I it just became mm-hmm. so massively clear when hearing people shout and cheer for characters who have their moments because there are so many moments in Scream Three. What makes it yeah. Tyrion for me? Is. Yeah, the moments are what lifted up. Are the, the moments. Mom- I, I will acknowledge that holistically, not where one and two, and of course for me, four are, but there are, this movie has a ton of fucking, and it's courtesy of fucking Parker Posey. It's yeah. courtesy well, of the cast. And also, look, is Jenny McCarthy a crazy Jenny anti-vaxxer? Jenny fucking yeah, McCarthy. But listen, she is serving it. And it's a moment where all, a character like Jenny McCarthy has transcended reality, because people who forget, Jenny McCarthy was a was a like a, a, a showgirl essentially on a yeah. dating show. She just came out and looked pretty and then yeah. became a cultural icon. Let's go to Jenny McCarthy. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the 
And from yeah. there, launched her acting career and then launched her book career. But in this mm-hmm. moment, we're seeing Jenny McCarthy as an actress. And by the way, she fucking kills it. She, it, 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 She's playing. I'm Candy, the chick who gets killed second. I'm only in two scenes. And she, in this moment, this is an in-between phase where, like, she's out of her MTV game mm-hmm. show, like, peak of fame early this is pre being able to sort of reinvent your own celebrity via like social media and cult of personality yes. so she's in this in-between space where jenny mccarthy's not super marketable no. she's not a commodity in the way that you can if you have a residual of fame you can kind of make yourself into something if you find the right cultural groove now and so her playing a washed up actress who's like too old for the parts she's being offered but because she's really sexy mm-hmm. she still gets offered these parts because it's all about her body and her image yep. I'm not happy that I'm 35 playing a 21-year-old. I'm not happy that I have to die naked. And I'm not happy that my character is too stupid to have a gun in the house after her boyfriend's been cut into fish sticks. Mm-hmm. And watching her sneer into a mirror while she adjusts her boobs and is having a conversation that she's absolutely exhausted by with her director of the th- second sequel to a horror franchise that she's in is a perfect moment i think it's the peak of jenny mccarthy's pop culture savvy i is her character in this and i think it's the kind of brilliance that wes craven shows in his casting of jenny mccarthy in that's akin to like uh john waters casting tracy lords in a film like this is yeah this is knowing the moment and then Mm -hmm. casting somebody who's actually very talented and who people are not expecting to you know really i don't know i was thinking of a sports metaphor like they spike the ball i guess i don't know is that what god i god i'm knock it out of the park that knock knock it out out of the park park. you know you don't expect that and so i don't know it's another example of why scream 3 the jokes that scream 3 is in on i think are it it pulls them off the jokes that scream 3 is not in on those are the ones i'm showing up for as well right like for me it's i think that's a fair set because there you get you get a you get a buffet of both yes and you're not going to get that in the other films and so, again, as a third installment, that's why, for me, three a, a third installment in a series of four, that's what makes this Ozturion. That is, I think that, I think that is probably objectively the best case for Scream 3. For, like, people who maybe aren't willing to hear other arguments, I think the idea of, like, what we've done here with the work of it and being like, listen, as a part three in a four-slash-five part franchise... This is doing a lot of interesting work subtextually, mm-hmm. in addition to having a lot of really enjoyable textual moments. I think that the, char- the character that the in the new Bev, watching with all these people, the character that people responded to most enthusiastically the entire night is Jennifer Jolie. Hey, hands down. He's Parker Posey. I think you'll really appreciate my character work in this one. Someone's helped me understand the real you. Someone? Your ruthless ambition. Your private self-loathing and that lost and lonely little girl inside. So when you have this kind of what might be for many people a sort of drag in the marathon with three, Parker Posey keeps you engaged. She re-engages you. And I, like, the fact that you have that kind of MVP who brings in, even if you love 
Gail and Sydney, you have somebody coming in with this totally fresh and unexpected thing you could never have guessed was going to be a part of a Scream franchise. Not a chance. And delivering this shot in the arm. It, as a as a bridge movie, to have a franchise MVP level performance, you can't that you can't look over a third installment for that. Agreed. And who could have seen that coming? Because Parker Posey brings something special to the to this that is not written in her character. It is the delivery. No, couldn't have been. And, couldn't. And have I been. think it is that special thing that makes Scream as a franchise really spectacular. It's what makes Kirby Kirby. It's not the writing. What makes it Courtney- is whatever Hayden Panettiere's intuitive sense of what she should be doing as Kirby that just makes that sing. And I would say in one and two, what makes Gail Gail? Look, it is Courtney Cox, but it's also the writing because goddamn, she'll send you a copy. You know, it is. <laughs> so I, I don't want to. I don't want to reduce. I don't want to reduce the role that the writing plays in these things. But I no, will say no, in no, no, three, no. it really mm-hmm. makes it stand out what it is that we love about these characters. Yeah, absolutely. Oh no, and and and, and everything is grounded in. This, even if, even if you know, it can feel shaky at times, the reason the house is still standing is because of the foundation built by Kevin Williamson and Wes Craven. Agreed. That's I, why we can have a five coming in 2020-something, is because what they built was so strong with one and followed up so strongly with two. And the heart, the heart and soul they built into this movie amidst the fun and the queer sense of humor and sensibility like that is why it can persist because the bones are there that they built friend i gotta say thank you for giving me the space to share some of my opinions that i know some of them do differ in this case and, and that so you know often, i can be a real bitch about yeah i know i've we'll seen take it. complete so, responsibility you know, for being a real I, bitch about i appreciate you i appreciate you hearing me out <laughs> and and having a civil conversation between two adults about a film that we are both very passionate about for different reasons. Yeah, I, I <laughs> hope frequent listeners will be noting the adjusted tone in Sam's voice right now in the style of diplomacy <laughs> in which he is delivering that, which is his like conflict mitigation tone of voice. Um, because again, I can be a real bitch about this movie. And uh, well, I mean, we better be sometimes. Were we shouting about it outside of the new Bev? Yeah, was it one of the best nights of my life? Yeah, did I leave that part of the story out? Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, did my boyfriend just want to go to the car because it was three fifteen in the morning, and we were yell literally yelling. We were having an argument. Yeah, about Scream Three. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's one of the few. It's one of the few like. Where you would imagine a person's face, like being like, "Well, I don't know what to tell you." Like each of us kind of making that, "Well, well I don't know what to tell you." I, sort of, I, I would like implicit facial expression and tone of voice, and not because Sam is being unreasonable, because I am. Like that's what the, and I am not one to fall on my sword in that way or self-deprecate. It's because I specifically <laughs> will be unfucking reasonable about protecting this. Well, movie. thank you for being reasonable tonight, and I, I really enjoyed this journey. Through Scream 3, which honestly, it I was nervous about bringing it on the show just because it is so complicated with where it appears in the timeline. It's complicated. But it, it is, is complicated. It is such, it, it brings up so many things that are vital for us to talk about in the context of the aughts era. Mm-hmm. And again, I think the it, truly in the end, the only way we could have started our conversation about Scream that will continue on this podcast, uh, but will sound very, that will sound different from how this one does. So I'm glad this is how we've broken the seal on the franchise. Me too. Um, and so you know, I think we we have now we this is we can put the bow on this, and 
say i'm so glad that we i think we had like a, a moment of epiphany together where it was like we have to talk about this one on the pod like yeah. you were like we need to talk about it I was like this needs to be the first screen we talk about on the mm-hmm. pod. yes we yeah. and, and you were like we need to do it we need to do it soon so it's fresh in the mind yeah i didn't want to so, wait uh, yeah thank you everybody for for joining us once again yeah. for another episode of austerion uh goodbye <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye.